Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 167. It's titled, Is Bitcoin Better at Money Than the Dollar? Today, we're discussing Bitcoin. I've not covered this topic on the podcast in over two years. This is episode 53, Should You Invest in Bitcoin? And the, the better question is, should you speculate in Bitcoin? Holding Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies is a speculation because there's disagreement on whether the currency will appreciate or depreciate in value. So we're going to discuss Bitcoin, but first let me share another radical currency that came out many years ago, right around the time of the U.S. Civil War. Prior to the 1860s, the U.S. government only issued gold and silver coins, and they were considered legal tender. Legal tender means they are recognized by the legal system as valid for meeting financial obligations. Paper money was issued, but it was only it was issued by private banks. And you could take that paper money and redeem it for gold, assuming the bank had the gold. The bank failed, your money was gone. But during the U.S. Civil War, the U.S. needed funds to support the war efforts, and they didn't have enough gold. They went to the President Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln went to the New York banks. They wanted 24 to 36 percent interest to lend money for the war effort. A businessman from Illinois named Colonel Dick Taylor went to Lincoln in January 1862 and suggested issuing this radical new currency, a currency that was not backed by gold. Taylor said, and this is from the Wikipedia article, just get Congress to pass a bill authorizing the printing of full legal tender treasury notes and pay your soldiers with them and go ahead and win your war with them also. If you make them full legal tender, they will have the full sanction of the government and be just as good as any money as Congress is given the express right by the Constitution. On February 25th, 1862, Congress passed the first Legal Tender Act. It authorized the issuance of $150 million of United States notes. They became became known as greenbacks because they were printed with green ink on the backside. But they were also very volatile. They weren't backed by anything. This was the first fiat currency. By the spring of 1863, the greenback had declined to where it was worth 152 per $100 of U.S. coins that were backed by gold. So they, they definitely had depreciated. But after, and then as different, different battles took place after the victory at Gettysburg, the greenback recovered to $131 to $100 in gold. In I think the worst was in July of 1864. 
It was worth 258 greenbacks per $100 of gold. And then after the war ended, it, it was $150 per $100 of gold. So it was very, very volatile, as volatile as Bitcoin because it was a new currency not backed by anything. By the mid-1870s, there was about $350 million worth of these greenbacks or U.S. notes in circulation. And in January 1875, Congress passed the Specie Payment Resumption Act, in which authorized the reduction of circulation of greenbacks to $300 million worth and required the government to redeem the greenbacks for gold. And and this was going to be implemented by 1879, in which case, essentially, the greenback strengthened because it was going to be at parity with gold and eventually was. And so you had U.S. coins backed by gold, and then you had U.S. notes backed by gold. And, And then even after the Federal Reserve started issuing dollars, they were backed by gold up until 1933, when... The, the government banned private ownership in gold. You can no longer redeem Federal Reserve or U.S. notes for gold. You could still redeem them for silver up until 1968, in which case all currency became fiat currency, not backed by anything. Federal Reserve notes and U.S. United States notes. So these, these greenbacks were issued up until 1971. And then... They were no longer distributed into public circulation. The U.S. went off the gold standard. And it was that point, money, cash, U.S. dollars became digital. It could be created at will by banks by simply lending. And I discussed that episode 94, how money is created and destroyed in episode 157. Money. What is money? I talked about it in episode 59, is gold money. And there's some standard definitions. One of them is it's a store of value. A second, a unit of account. And three, a medium of exchange. We're going to look at Bitcoin and see how it compares on that. But first, the store of value. How has the dollar done as a store of value? Not so well. The annual inflation rate, as measured by the Consumer Price Index, has increased at 4% annually since 1971. That means you would need $600 today to buy $100 worth of 1971 goods. And and how fast is this money supply increasing? Well, M2 is a measure is a broader me- measure of money supply includes US dollars, coins as well as digital bank savings, money market accounts. In August 1971, there was $685 billion of this measure of U.S. money. Today, it's $13.2 trillion. That's how much the money supply has expanded, and that is what leads and has led to inflation. Last year, over the past three years, it's increased the money supply, this M2, by 6.4% per year on average. Now, let's compare that to gold. So there's $13.5 trillion of U.S. money, dollars. There are approximately 200,000 tons of gold that has been mined and is available around the world. And so that, that's about 6.4 billion ounces. It's worth roughly 
trillion dollars. And each year, there's about 3,000 new tons of new gold mined, which means the, the rate of increase in the gold supply increases about one and a half percent per year. So it, it's increasing at a, a much slower rate than the, the, the money supply, which is why over time, gold should do better, basically appreciate in the U.S. dollars because the, the supply of gold is not increasing as fast as U.S. dollars, except it's also very, very volatile because it depends. All currencies depend on trust. Do, you, do people want to use dollars? Do they want to hold gold? And, and their level of trust in wanting to hold those assets influences their price. Now, let's compare that to Bitcoin. There are 16 and a half million Bitcoins essentially in circulation. So that, that's the number of coins. And we're going to talk in a minute. So the Bitcoin is not really a coin, but about 16 and a half million dollars. Total value, 47 million. That's the total value of Bitcoin. And that's at a, at a price of roughly $2,600 per Bitcoin. Very, very small when you compare that to $8 trillion of gold and $13.5 trillion uh, uh, in terms of the U.S. money supply. So Bitcoin is really, really tiny. And the, the algorithm that runs Bitcoin that sets how much Bitcoin is created per year in the last year, the number of new Bitcoin increased 4.4%. But from a very much smaller base, so 4.4% of $47 million would be the amount of new Bitcoin created in the next year compared to a 1.5% increase of gold that has a base of $8 trillion and the 6% increase in the U.S. money supply, which is at $13.5 trillion. And, and so when we look at the, the price of Bitcoin. I started getting involved in Bitcoin researching it pretty extensively in 2012, summer 2012. And I talked about this back in episode 53. It was priced at $11 per Bitcoin. In 2015, when I did the episode, JD sent me a Bitcoin or some Bitcoin. He sent me 0 0.0078 Bitcoin. It was worth $1.75. Today, that Bitcoin, which I still have, is worth over $20. So that that is storing value. The value is going up because more people are trusting using Bitcoin despite its flaws, its growing pains, which we'll, we'll discuss. But as more people trust it and want to use it because there's a limited supply and a set supply and, and the amount of Bitcoin is not growing as fast as either gold or U.S. dollars, then, then its price relative to those currencies, is going up. Money is also a medium of exchange. And in episode 84 was money is trust. I said money facilitates exchanges that would not have occurred in a bartering economy because money acts as a symbol or token of value. Money requires cooperation and trust for it to function properly and facilitate transactions. Trust is required because money has no intrinsic value. It has only symbolic value. Money cannot be used in its physical form to make something productive. You can't eat it. You can't build shelter out of it. You can't use paper money for heat by burning it in your fireplace. And 
Money has value because we and others believe it is worth something in that it can be exchanged for something of value. And it people believe Bitcoin has value and as a result, the price is going up. But what is Bitcoin? It The first Bitcoin was issued in January 2009. The developer was a man named Satoshi Nakamoto. And but Bitcoin's not a physical coin. It's not even really a digital coin. Bitcoin's a digital record of previous transactions between various Bitcoin addresses that is stored in a digital universal ledger, which is called the blockchain. Now, the JD sent me 0.0078 Bitcoin, and I held it. I downloaded an app on my phone called Hive, and that's that's where that Bitcoin was sent to because it had an address. And, and so then there was a record of this transaction. But before I could spend that Bitcoin again, it had to be verified. Again, Bitcoin is just this, this record in the cloud of, of Bitcoin transactions. And so the entities that verify transaction that JD sent me a Bitcoin to my Hive wallet are called miners. And what they do is all these transactions, six times an hour, about every 10 minutes, the transactions are lumped together and then they're put in what's known as a block. And then the miners work on a basically a mathematical algorithm that is trying to solve a particularly difficult math problem using the data from those transactions that are part of the block. So they're verifying the transactions are legitimate. At the same time, they're trying to solve a mathematical problem, and computers around the world are, are competing to see who can solve and verify these transactions the fastest. Whoever is able to do that gets a reward of new Bitcoin, 12 and a half Bitcoins they get for, for achieving that and verifying it. But again, these are verified around the world on computer networks. And then, as I mentioned, there's a limited supply of Bitcoin. So every 10 minutes, new 12 and a half Bitcoin are created. And every four years, the because the essentially the amount of new Bitcoin reward is going to be cut in half. But they also, there are transaction fees. So when JD sent me that Bitcoin, he paid a transaction fee, a small transaction fee to send me that Bitcoin. So the miners also get the transaction fees. And, and that's what it's, it's an amazing system that isn't dependent on a central bank, but it definitely is dependent on trust. Do others trust and want to use Bitcoin? Now, I had a quite slight problem because I forgot that JD sent me some Bitcoin. So I went to my phone and I looked for my Hive wallet and my app there and it wasn't there. So I went to the Hive website and I saw this big sign that said, Hive is closed. Thanks for your support. They basically stopped development on Hive. And I thought, did I lose my Bitcoin? Before I answer that, let me share some words from this week's sponsor. We have a brand new sponsor to our show. It's Yahoo Finance. Yahoo's been around for decades. My first email outside of work was a Yahoo email address. But the financial side, I've used on occasion primarily to get data for dividend histories for particular funds or ETFs. 
but I was pleasantly surprised to get back on Yahoo Finance to see how it's evolved over the years. Now it's really a financial dashboard where you can get an understanding of what's going on with the markets. There are relevant articles from Bloomberg, Reuters, the Associated Press, and the Yahoo Finance team. You can look at the economic events calendar and see which data series are being released that day and what the consensus is. You can see the pulse of the markets at any time by going to Yahoo Finance. In addition, you could see all of your investments in retirement accounts in one place. With Yahoo Finance, you get a consolidated view of multiple accounts. Yahoo Finance serves as a financial hub for your retirement accounts, but also comprehensive financial news and analysis. You need to check out Yahoo Finance, particularly if you haven't been there in a while. Check it out at yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. If you've been using Mint to manage your finances, you know they shut down several months ago. Well, let me tell you about the budgeting solution, the financial tracking solution I've been using for the past number of months. It's Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets like I've done. You can set goals, collaborate with your partner. And now you can get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. What I like about Monarch is the ability to customize what I want to see. I have custom budget categories, and then I can go on to the dashboard and see where I'm above trend on some of my spending. I especially like that Monarch will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying Monarch myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com David for your extended 30-day free trial. So it turns out I was able to get my Bitcoin back from, not from Hive, and I'll show you in a minute how I did that, but there's, there's an important component to Bitcoin you need to understand. And this is from Mastering Bitcoin. It's a book by Andreas Antonopoulos, and he also wrote The Internet of Money. And this, this guy knows a ton about Bitcoin and, and has been very helpful in my education on the topic. He writes, in Bitcoin, we use public key cryptography to create a key pair to control access to Bitcoin. The key pair consists of a private key and derive from it a unique public key. The public key is used to receive Bitcoins and the private key is used to sign transactions to spend Bitcoin. There is a mathematical relationship between the public and private keys that allows the private key to be used to generate signatures on messages. This signature can be validated against the public key. When spending Bitcoin, the current Bitcoin owner presents her public key and a signature, which is different each time. But again, that signature is created from the same private key. And so in the transaction, so there's a public key and a signature to spend those Bitcoins. Through the presentation of the public key and signature, everyone in the Bitcoin network, all the miners, can verify and accept the transaction as valid confirming the person transferring the Bitcoins owned them at the time of the transfer. So the key, the key, pun intended, I guess, is this private key and public key. So what I did, I went to, I searched online, I went to a website 
called coin.space, and I opened an existing wallet because Hive was open was open architecture in terms of it mentioned that all of their development code was was put in GitHub. Git, GitHub. It was full in the full source code. And so other developers took it and basically are running virtual Hive wallet. So I opened an existing wallet. And because I had my 12-word passphrase, which unlocked my private key, I, and I added a, my four-digit pin, I was able to access my Bitcoin because of, of this security that's built into it. And so then I sent it to a, a new wallet that I downloaded on my smartphone phone called Jax, J-A-X. Now, what's interesting about that, in order to do that, I had to pay a transaction fee. So my transaction fee to move it from the virtual hive to my new wallet was 0.00468 Bitcoin. So about a dollar five. And then I had to wait. So immediately it showed up on my wallet, but then it took 12 hours for that transaction to be confirmed, to be recognized on the blockchain, be part of a block and, and to be confirmed. So then I could spend that Bitcoin again. But it's all out there with, with these miners. Now, the fact that it took 12 hours gets to a, the center of a current controversy, controversy that's going on with Bitcoins. There's six blocks per hour, one every 10 minutes. And the size of the blocks, the, the data storage is one megabyte, which means only about 3,000 transactions can fit in a block. So that works out to about seven transactions per second. You compare that to Visa, Visa has 2,000 transactions per second. And so Bitcoin's much smaller, much smaller processing rate in terms of transaction. And it took a long time. Now, I could have had it verified faster by paying a higher transaction fee because there's a priority in terms of which transactions get verified first. Whoever pays the most in the fee, they get priority. And the longer it's been since the transaction showed up, so even if your fee was really low, after time has passed, eventually it's going to get put in a block, even those transactions that might not have any transaction fee. So eventually, but it took 12 hours. And, and that's been a, a huge controversy with Bitcoin because there's sort of been this, this civil war among different developers and those that are running mining software to expand the size of the block so that it can... It, can hold more memory. So more transactions can be processed per hour. Now, there's some disagreement in the way because there's no no one controls Bitcoin. It's just this, this network of computers that run the software. And this is from an article in the US Tele, UK Telegraph. It says, last week, key miners and developers of Bitcoin agreed to adopt a new way of oper operating the cryptocurrency. Since the technology is open source, Changes are made to its underlying code if agreed by a consensus of users. Now, this new technology is called SegWit2x, S-E-G-W-I-T-2x. SegWit2x proposes moving some of Bitcoin's transaction data outside the block and on a parallel track to allow more transactions to take place. And then the block size would be doubled sometime in November. Now, the competing proposal is something called Bitcoin Cash, and they propose that the block size just be increased to eight megabits. And today, August 1st, that there was they never could agree. And so there's been a hard split 
in the blockchain, which means now there's Bitcoin and, and Bitcoin Cash, this rival currency. It's a chain split. Now, what this means is because Bitcoin is just a record of all prior transactions, Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin will share the, their, the blockchain, the, the public ledger of all the transactions in the past, but not going forward. And so now I had that Bitcoin I owned. I now can have the regular Bitcoin and the Bitcoin Cash. I own the same amount. I could spend it as Bitcoin Cash. I could spend it as regular Bitcoin. But there's been a fork and this has never happened. And, and it potentially will increase volatility even more because this is a young technology. And again, it depends on trust. So you've maybe seen some news regarding that. That's what it's about. It, it's Two versions of the software now running, all in attempt to increase the size of the blocks so that more transactions could be processed. Now, you know, one reason there was perhaps some reason not to do it is because the transaction fees were going up. And so people were making money. Transactions could be, the miners could make up to $5 per transaction sometime. And so there was an incentive not necessarily to increase the block size, but it looks like it's going to work out. We'll see. So there's a hard fork, and that just happened today. Now, in order for people to trust a currency and to use it and to use it for exchanges, it needs to be secure. And there's been a lot of stories about Bitcoin not being secure. My friends that introduced me to Bitcoin back in 2012, when he spent a lot of time dealing with it, they they lost all their Bitcoin. Somebody got a hold of their private key because they stored it on their laptop which is not a very secure place because hackers, if they can get the private key, then they can control the transactions. They can access the public record and they, they essentially can then control the Bitcoin. One of the major exchanges, Mt. Gox, where I tried to buy Bitcoin, was never able to do it, lost a huge amount of their Bitcoin because somebody accessed the private keys. That's the thing about Bitcoin. If you store it on an exchange, then you don't control both aspects, the public key and the private key. You lose, you lose control. Now, that's not to say that you can't lose money in, with regular currency. A local news report in Denver reported how a Colorado couple lost their life savings while they were trying to buy their retirement dream home. They, they have filed a lawsuit with Wells Fargo Bank, the land title company, land title guarantee as the title company, and Envoy Mortgage, which was their mortgage broker, as well as their realtor and the real estate agency. They lost their payment. They, they sold their house in Longmont, and they were using $272,000 as a down payment. The mortgage broker said, in the morning, you'll get an email from the title company where to wire the funds. The next morning, they got a, a, an email. It matched the amount that the mortgage broker had said, and so they wired it. Turns out the title company email servers had been hacked and it was a fake email and they, they wired it to the wrong account and they, they couldn't get their money back. And this is becoming more and more common because they, they just, it was gone. And, they, and so there's ways to lose money with regular currency. I was in New York last year, a couple of years ago. I used an ATM I, in Brooklyn and I... I put my money in, or no, I, I used my card, I took my money out, and within days, there were fraudulent transactions on my account because they had basically captured my ATM data 
my, my debit card data in that ATM. When you use a credit or debit card and that data is captured, what, you're sending the card number and the card verification code is often asked for, as well as your address and all types of information. Andreas Antonopoulos writes, Bitcoin is fundamentally different. What I am transmitting, transmitting is not the key, but a simple signed message. It is an authorization. That authorization has two external references to where the money's coming from by referencing an unspent output on the blockchain and two, a reference to where I want to send the money by creating a new encumbrance, a new limitation on who can spend the money, usually a public key or Bitcoin address. The transaction contains no sensitive data. If you steal that information in the transaction, all you know is which address the money came from, which address the money is going to, and how much. You didn't transmit your secret key. It was just a, there's a signed message that can be verified that the transaction is is legitimate, but you, you can't lose the money unless you send it to the wrong address. But you can. And that, that's what I find so fascinating about cryptocurrency and Bitcoin is here's a way to hold money that, that has value because people trust it, but hold it in a way that you're not dependent on the, the financial system to hold it. If I want to hold a a let's say, a foreign currency, digitally, how do I do that? I get emails all the time from members of Money for the Restless Plus that want to open up an investment account. They live outside of the U.S. They're not U.S. citizens, and they want to open an account in the U.S. And it's very, very difficult to do it, if not impossible. It's hard to hold digital money in a way outside of your home currency. But with Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, you can you, you can hold it in an exchange, but again, by holding it in an exchange, you're exposing yourself to potentially that exchange being compromised. So when I buy Bitcoin, I and I will be buying more cryptocurrency as a speculation. I buy it on a website called, I think it's called Coinbase, and it's linked to my bank account. And once I buy the cryptocurrency, I send it to either my wallet on my iPhone where I have the private key stored, or you can get an external USB wallet, which I actually just just bought one by Trezor, T-R-E-Z-O-R, and you can store it there. And you can put that, that USB basically just has your private key and then it interacts with the Bitcoin or other cryptocurrency network. But it's, it's absolutely fascinating. I have no idea where the price is going, right? We don't know how this hard fork will turn out. In a future episode, maybe next week, we'll talk about other developments in cryptocurrency, such as Ethereum, Ripple, and, and talk about initial coin offerings and, and some of the shenanigans going on there. But there was a book written, I think a couple decades ago by Clayton Christensen called Innovator's Dilemma. And it's talking about disruptive technology and talking about all the challenges with disruptive technology. It's not perfect. It's good enough. And if you see the path of Bitcoin, it's just been good enough. There's been problems. There's been exchanges hacked. There's been fraud. But, and there, there's been controversy in terms of increasing the block size. But all this time, it's, it's gaining trust. There are countries around the world where there's limits to, to being able to use currency. And people are using Bitcoin because it's anonymous 
and it's secure because it's not dependent on having to interact with the traditional financial system. It does require trust. All currency requires trust, but here's a way to have a currency that's held outside of of the traditional financial system. This is a way to diversify. This is a diver- additional diversification, but it's also speculative. It's speculative like holding gold because you're not sure if it'll be positive or negative. But I certainly am in a process of increasing my holdings of uh, of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, and because I feel a little regret because I after that 2015 episode, I bought Bitcoin, about five thousand dollars worth of Bitcoin. It would be worth $50,000 today, except I sold most of it in January 2016 after reading a number of articles by people that had been involved in the Bitcoin network early on that Bitcoin was dead because of this this blockchain size issue and because so much of the currency miners are concentrated in China. And why are they in China? Because China has cheap power. If you can run the, the mining computers, the, the cheaper you can run them in terms of the power to run them, right, electricity, then and the faster processor you can get, then you're more likely to win this competition that's going on globally to verify transactions and solve the algorithm. So a lot of computing power has gone to China that causes some concern, but also this whole blockchain size. But these are bumps in the road. We'll see if Bitcoin continues. Maybe the price will crash by half, but this is a way of diversifying. And if the price crashes, it's because it lost trust. But everything I've seen is trust is continuing to gain in Bitcoin. Maybe it's there in other cryptocurrencies, something we'll still have to explore. So that's episode 167. Show notes are available at moneyfortherestofus.com. That's where you can sign up for my insider's guide. And I've changed the insider's guide. Now, what I send in that weekly free email is I I send the show notes. I I also send a separate, basically, newsletter. Things that it can be. I used to write a weekly article for the local papers. And then I would take that article. It was sort of a summary of some of what I share in the podcast. And I'd send it to email newsletters. I'm no longer writing for the local paper. And I'm actually sending insider's guides information they can't get elsewhere. In other words, this is content that's crafted just for these free email news subscribers, newsletter subscribers. So it's it's free. You can sign up at moneyfortherestofus.com or if a U.S.-based listener, just text the word insider to the number 44222. So go ahead and, and sign up and you get stuff you, you won't get anywhere else because it's just going to you. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. Only if not considered your specific risk profile. I've not provided investment advice, simply general education on money, investing in the economy. Have a great week.